Welcome to Weird Sisters, your Discworld reread podcast. My name is Manning. Joining me, as always, is Danny. Hello. And joining us for the first time is Liz. Hi. How are you guys? Liz will be joining us for as many episodes as she wants. To start, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I live in Colorado. I graduated from college last year. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Um, I don't know. I guess I've always been a big old nerd and I've always read a lot and I've always played a lot of video games and I've not always been a super like into fantasy, but I've always heard good things about Terry Pratchett. So I decided to give it a try with the Discworld books. Oh, fantastic. You haven't read them yourself yet, have you? No, this is my first time reading through them. I'm not the only one this time. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, new babies to the Discworld series. I've wanted, since the inception of this podcast, for it to be a three-person thing. Yeah, yeah. Now our name makes sense. Yeah, totally. I've, like, vaguely heard of the Weird Sisters through, like, references and other things and didn't realize it was a Discworld thing until I was, like, looking through the list of all of the books. And I was like, oh, like, I've heard that before. Although we could also have called it Word Sisters. Is that how some people pronounce it? Well, no, like, uh, because it's a book series. Oh, okay. That makes sense. I get it now. Okay. So I think we'll go directly into the plot summary of this book, The Light Fantastic, from uh, the secret extra sister who hides out in a magic spell book somewhere. <laughs> oh, Liz, it's a running gag that mm -hmm. the plot summaries come from the secret extra sister. Oh, okay. Just... Somewhere back there, in a closet somewhere. That's actually a good thing. Maybe we'll use that next time. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. The Light Fantastic begins immediately following The Color of Magic, as Rincewind and Two Flower are falling off the disc. This agitates the Octavo, an incredibly powerful spellbook kept in the premier magic school Unseen University. The spells within it use their magic to rescue Rincewind, since one of the book's eight spells took residence in his brain years ago, and the rest want to keep it safe. This whole process attracts the attention of the other wizards at Unseen University, most notably the nefarious and calculating Trimon, and after getting an explanation from death, they all start to pursue Rincewind. The wizards chase our protagonists through a gingerbread house and into a druid computer programming project, where they are joined by legendary hero Cohen the Barbarian and intended virgin sacrifice Bethan. Two flowers poisoned in the process, leading to a digression at Death's house before returning to the land of the living. At Rincewind's insistence, the four of them set off for Ankh-Morpork, but they are now being pursued by the heroine Herena, which leads to an encounter with a group of trolls, including the massive Old Granddad. All this time, a red star has been slowly approaching the Discworld, causing panic and interfering with magic. The heroes navigate around a mob of star cultists back into Unseen University to confront Trimon, and ultimately save the disc by reading out the eight spells and causing eight spheres overning that star to hatch into eight newborn world turtles. With that, Two Flower heads back to the Gatian Empire, leaving the luggage with Rincewind, and they part ways, uncertain if they will ever meet again. So, what did you two think? I really liked this one. Like, it hit quite a few of my favorite things, like foreshadowing via weird prophecies, death existing, and cults. Oh, oh yeah, just that thing. <laughs> Yeah, who doesn't love a good cult? <laughs> <laughs> I 
I really, really liked it. I mean, I really liked the book before this that I am totally blanking on the name now. The Color of Magic? Yes, I really liked The Color of Magic. Um, like I said, I've never been like super into fantasy, and especially like high fantasy, because it's always felt like way too big for me. But I just, it feels like very concise and like the world, like there's obviously like a whole lot of world to explore and the light fantastic. And we meet so many different groups of people and we hear about like the histories of everything, a lot of that through the narration and everything, but it feels very easy to digest unlike a lot of high fantasy. So I, I really, really dug it. I was not expecting to like it as much as I have been. Oh, fantastic. I've just encountered a bit of a problem while you were going through my going through the summary. What's that? The what I've been reading, I don't have the full book. Oh no. Oh. Mine went straight from the battle at the gingerbread house to the wizards and then back to the scene with the where Rincewind is talking to the trolls. Yeah, so I'm, I still got, I think, a lot of the plot, but I missed a lot of the humor, which is a little upsetting. So I'm going to have to go back and reread that, but it shouldn't affect the podcast too much. So I want to discuss the characters a bit because... Liz, we never got your opinion on Rincewind and Flower last time. I really... Rincewind is not a character that I would enjoy in probably any other form of media. Because I always hate those, like, purposefully kind of edgy characters. Because they just get on my nerves after a while. Edgy? Interesting. Yeah, because, well, he's just so negative And he's such, like, a Debbie Downer all the time. Because, like, I think of edgy as, like, the mean-spirited. Mm-hmm. As opposed to just cynical. Yeah, yeah. Not that, like, hardcore kind of edgy. Just the type of person where I wouldn't want to hang out with them at a party. But there's enough humor in Rincewind that I don't get tired of him. And that I really enjoy seeing him, especially juxtaposed next to Two Flower, who's, like, the sweetest baby I have ever read about. (laughs) He's just just so good-hearted and optimistic, and he's just down for whatever. And I can appreciate that. A good, sweet, baby, 40 to 50 year old Chinese man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A middle-aged Chinese man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I really dig them. I especially really dig them together. I think one of them on their own might be a lot. Rincewind does actually get a chance to go out on his own for a little bit. And it's not quite the same without Two Flower, but he does retain at least a little bit of charm. Partially... And this is something I was thinking about since we recorded the last episode. Rincewind isn't really wrong in any of the scenarios he's in. I personally would be very scared if I was on a rock in the sky. Yeah, totally. Uh, Absolutely. Because Rincewind obviously has like a good sense of self-preservation. It's nice to see him like in a situation and react the rational way and not in like the typical hero way. Speaking of the typical hero way, one of our major supporting characters is Cohen the Barbarian, if you guys have thoughts about him. I didn't realize he was so old because I was missing most of my book. <laughs> yeah, he is very, very, very old. <laughs> I only realized he was old after he made his his proposal to to the 17-year-old. I was like, oh, yep, I saw this coming. Oh. Oh my. (laughs) He's 87, I believe. (laughs) And I was also still picturing Haran the Barbarian. They're pretty interchangeable, uh, aside from Cohen being very old. 
Yeah. Speaking actually of the 17-year-old Bethan, what did you think of her? I didn't really know what to make of her at first. Um, like, I liked her when she, in the uh, scene where Two Flower decides to interject himself into the cult's proceedings and stop uh, their sacrifice of Bethan. And she reacts pretty poorly to that. She's pretty upset. And I liked that idea of like, no, this is something she wanted to happen. And this is like a whole deal she was bought into. And now suddenly she can't. And part of the reason she was upset is because she has been purposefully staying a virgin for that specific reason. It is interesting. Indicative of the culture that she was raised in. I imagine that sort of messes with a person a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. But later in the book, when they are running away from the actual cultists, not the druids, she just reacts very rationally. She's very fiery. And especially like during the last like scene, I guess, or a couple scenes of the book. Yeah, she ends up saving the day at the very end. Yeah, and I found that so interesting and because it's, it's she's not in every like scene up in, in the book up to this point, even since she's been introduced. So then I just wanted to get out of the way real quick mm -hmm. about her age specifically. Yeah. Obviously the age gap between them is really troubling in the current climate. Yeah. It is lessened somewhat by the fact that the age of consent in the UK is 16. Yeah. So for Americans, that reduces the creepiness by a certain amount. Yeah, just like a smidge. Enough, kind mm -hmm. of. Yeah. I definitely think that Cohen and Betham aren't together because they're like the idealistic couple that we get in a lot of like books. I think there's is supposed to be kind of poking fun at that because she's like the damsel in distress and he's the hero. And there's a 70 year age difference between them. But if there is one thing I know about, it's age of consent laws, because that was something that always confused me. So I had to go and look it up. But I mean, at least in the US, I, I don't know anything about the UK, but it's really only meant for people with an age gap of like, up to I would say five years at the max, like it, it has it's usually people who knew each other. And, like, were together before the older of them became of age so that, like, it was okay even though, like, it would- so that it wouldn't be illegal for somebody who was, um, 18 to- somebody who is freshly 18 to be with somebody who's still 16. It's tough because it's not really a productive discussion to focus on that, but it, at the same time, it feels not something we should just let slide. I guess we could just sort of agree to- that it's- a little weird, and I feel like Terry Pratchett probably, if he was writing this book today, would not have done it in exactly the same way. Yeah, I think that's a pretty safe bet, because even at the time, I can imagine it was probably a little um, odd, but... I can see that. Yeah. At the time, he just probably thought of it as a joke, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. I can see it. I can see it as a joke, especially since it doesn't. it doesn't exactly go very far as a joke and the characters themselves do also poke fun at it so as a joke it plays off pretty well but the fact that it's there i think you know we we brushed upon it we're we're good yeah but uh like you guys have mentioned it's obviously a very different time than when this book was published and especially the past couple of years have really changed how people um talk about consent and yeah back back when this was published in the 80s yeah so very long time ago at this point. Moving away from that whole thing, uh, 
What did you think of Trimon? Or Trimon, or however his name is. As as a villain and as a go-getter, I can respect him. As a person, not so much. <laughs> he's um he's very interesting in that he's he's willing to do what it takes and put down whoever gets in his way. And given that that's like how wizard culture works, it's pretty funny. But then he does some pretty some pretty questionable some pretty questionable stuff and get in the books and uh cask of amontilladoing a, lo- a bunch of wizards um <laughs> now there's a verb that implies i think a lot more effort than he actually put into it it's uh, he just closed the door and less <laughs> edgar Allan poe and more macaulay culkin <laughs> yeah yeah we could go that uh, first real villain of the discworld series thing that stuck out to me about his introduction is that they reference he drinks only boiled water which I thought said a lot about both his character and how Terry Pratchett wants us as a contemporary reader to imagine him. Because these books are definitely written with a voice that is very much aware of the modern, of at the time, real world. Yeah, totally. And of course, just for the sake of making sure everyone's on the same page to any viewers who might be confused, you can't drink just regular nature water, especially if you are in the medieval era, like most fantasy stuff is set, because of germ and poop. Yeah, yeah. Water was not a very careful resource up until past couple past couple centuries. So Truman seems aware of that. Truman. Plus, he's also that guy. You know the one. He's He's that guy. I hate that guy. A little bit of if Dwight was capable <laughs> of ascending, Dwight from the office, rising in the hierarchy, or a little bit of a slightly more evil Arnold Rimmer from Red Dwarf. Yeah, he's uh, super interesting as a villain because at least a lot of things I see, like villains tend to be like stereotypical bad guys. Like they're the CEO of a big corporation that's poisoning water specifically to get this certain thing. And he's not like necessarily like that, especially when we first get introduced to him. He's just a power hungry guy in a situation where that's a totally socially acceptable thing. And then we get to kind of see his own evolution into being more of a a, a high fantasy bad guy. He's ambitious in a system where ambition is rewarded with, or where ambitions are fulfilled via stabbing. Yeah, which makes his decision to boil water like make total sense because he's trying to avoid an obvious end. I think because it makes sense, especially considering like how the wizards uh, deal with ascending in positions of power for him to be so paranoid about it in a setting where that's not much the case. (laughs) Yeah. His only vice is ambition. He doesn't smoke either and turning into an eldritch abomination. But that's another story. That's less him and more the just tearing apart of the universe, him being just at the point where people, where dungeon things can get through. He should have stuck to the stabbing, honestly. Mm-hmm. Stabbing would have been a good plan. He might have not uh, ended so poorly. A couple minor characters that I, I wanted to talk about. Galder Weatherwax, Arch-Chancellor of the Unseen University, gets killed by Trimon so that he, Trimon, can ascend to the position of Arch-Chancellor. He's later on confirmed to be a distant relative of Granny Weatherwax, who is, you'll meet her in the next book. Look forward to her. She's one of those characters I have heard of before. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard she's fun. 
I really love the luggage. It's not really a character uh, in the sense of the other characters, but the like mental images I get reading about the stuff the luggage does are always so entertaining and I love them. And it makes me wish that like there could just be a TV show or something where we got to see specifically like Rinse Two Flower and the luggage because I just want to see the luggage doing all the ridiculous things that it does like speeding across the countryside. You're in luck then, to a certain extent, because The Color of Magic and The Light Fantastic were adapted into a TV miniseries. Tim Curry as Tryman. You did- I needed to know that. Thank you for <laughs> telling me that. I needed to know that. Like, oh, yeah. badly. That sounds insincere, but I mean it. The adaptation did make a lot of changes that I think did actually help the book and story in some ways. Yeah, that's like the one thing I've heard about uh, Terry Pratchett's writing is that the first few Discworld novels in the chronological order are not as awesome as some of the later books get to be. And I think that's part of Terry Pratchett kind of finding his feet with the books. So I think it makes total sense. Whenever you're adapting anything, you should be making those changes because you have a chance to rework something. Absolutely. You're totally correct. One other minor character that I wanted to talk about, Karina, the henna-haired harridan, who is sent to chase after our main characters by Tryman. She just has a really great introduction. I just appreciated her as a character. Do you guys have any sort of idea about the overall ethos of the Light Fantastic? I don't know. Uh, like, morals are one of those things that I've always struggled the most picking out of books or just stories in general and then one of those things after you read multiple times for it to become like super obvious to me but the one I did get from this one is that being a hero kind of means different things to different people because like Cohen um, is obviously a very different hero from the one that Rincewind ends up being in the end and I think part of that is him learning what he wants to be a hero for and caring about his friends and caring about his home are part of his motivations for deciding not to just sit um, by the wayside and continue to be essentially a coward, to put it bluntly. And I don't know, that's the one I got. And I think, I don't know, I think it's important. I think it was really important to Rincewind's character and his growth in this book. There is definitely a motif of coming home in this story. Yeah, and I think it makes sense, especially after the events of The Color of Magic and the events in the first part of The Light Fantastic. They're, like, two flower winds wind have been in some crazy situations, and they probably both feel a little tired of that. And so I think going home and taking time to oneself and getting out of the craziness is important with that. Discord would pretty easily have just been a series novels about Rincewind and Two Flower journeying to different parts of the disc and seeing things. But the decision to not do that, I think, ultimately helped this series. Oh yeah, totally. Because think about how many book series there are that focus on one or two or three characters and there are 15 novels about them. And that's all those books are about. I think, I think especially as a writer, I know I like to play with different characters and the idea of just like getting a set of characters and just working with them for years and years and years and years and never changing who I'm writing about, I would get tired of that. So I can understand where Pratchett's motivations were for that too. I have a I have a similar kind of opposite side of the problem where 
as a writer, I come up with all these out there worlds and all these characters that I can put into the world. But as soon as I start working on their story, it just keeps connecting like, oh, this is part of the same universe. Oh my gosh, this story is actually connected to this other one that I wrote years ago and I didn't even realize until halfway through. So like I have the problem of I write all these different characters, but it always comes back to the same central themes. Oh yeah, I totally understand that. That's how my writing was for a long time and I never finished anything because everything always got way too big for me to deal with and just changing it up and just working with different characters that kind of forces me to keep it small and concise and based on Pratchett's collection of materials that he wrote in his life. It's obvious that he was trying to finish things. If that's all we wanted to talk about with themes and morals, then should we move on to notable quotes? I actually had one that I could put in. I picked up from Two Flower also, kind of like this ideology of it'll all work out in the end, just keep going and doing what you want to do, because he's a tourist. He just wants to go and wants to see things and wants to experience as much as he can, and consequences be darned, he's gonna do it, whether that means taking pictures of eldritch creatures or not letting Rincewind fall to his death and getting to be the hero for a little while. He's gonna do what he's gonna do, and it's respectable. The reasons why he goes about it can be a little weird because it's that touristy mix of curiosity and ignorance, but it's respectable in a lot of ways. Yeah, I find Two Flower in general to be really refreshing as a character. It just feels like we have a lot of characters who are just very comfortable um, in their settings. And in modern media, and especially TV is where I getting I get a lot of this, is characters that kind of are bored with their surroundings. And Two Flower, he thinks like everything is wonderful and he wants to experience everything. And he's looking at everything through new eyes, essentially. And that kind of juxtaposed with that kind of more negative tone I get from a lot of media I really 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 like and especially that last scene with him it's just it's just so endearing to see him be like no I'm gonna be the hero that I've wanted to be that I've dreamt about being that I've read stories about it's it was just really cool to see that characters are defined by their decisions two flower for all of the way that he's largely passive in his own story he still is there under no obligation but because this is his choice to be where he is for a lot of it yeah the he, he just he wants to be there this is the thing he wants to be doing and he's gonna do it <laughs> I wish more people would write more childish wonder and write more joy. Like, it's not immature to write people being happy, like, with the little things. It doesn't matter what age you are, you can still go outside and play. You can still revel in the sunshine or go out and dance in the rain. I know my family does that sometimes, and it's really nice. But what you said, a lot of media that's really, really good can be really negative. I'm rereading The Golden Compass currently, and Philip Pullman's outlook is really bleak. And he uses his characters to change it into something a little more hopeful, but still, it's not that perfect ending, the main characters get to be together, and everything is all happy, because that's the kind of story it is. But nowadays, I've noticed we've kind of had the recycled theme of the young person needs to fight and tear down what the old person has built. 
guilt and gets really angry. And I can understand a lot of that anger. And it's some not bad writing at all. But like taking a moment to be happy every so often is something I really like. And I found myself giggling while I was reading. And I missed doing that. I genuinely missed it. It was is delightful in the words of our absent secret sister. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, it's just fun and it's refreshing because I think writers of TV, of movies, of books, of whatever, kind of hit a point where they were tired of seeing the typical happy endings. And so they started doing the opposite of that. And I think we're hitting a point where we're getting tired of seeing the bittersweet endings or the sad or awful endings and are just looking for a little bit of that happiness that would probably have been a lot more common when this book came out. I, I don't know if I would actively give this book to like one of my younger cousins or something, especially if they're 10 and under, because there are some jokes and everything that are kind of pushing the appropriateness for that kind of age group. But it still has a fun feeling. Uh, books that I read when I was a kid had, like young adult novels, some of them do still have. I'm not sure, because I think that kids will surprise you if you let them. Yeah, I work in a K-12 through school, and I'm always surprised at what kids have to offer. And I guess it's kind of coloring my idea of what is appropriate for kids, because I specifically work in the library. And so we have to make very careful decisions about what books we would include and everything. So that's probably where my understanding is coming from. Fair enough. So this is following the wizard summoning death to ask him about the Red Star and everything. Greyhold Spold which is a mouthful of a rocks of a name. Just complicated clockwork of the lock and shut the lid, lying back to the knowledge that here at last is the perfect defense against the most ultimate of all his enemies. Although as yet he has not considered the important part that air holes must play in an enterprise of kind. And right beside him, very close to his ear, a voice had just said, Dark in here, isn't it? I remember that part. I really loved it because it's just... It reminded me a lot of that in the scene in The Color of Magic where the bartender set his building on fire to get the insurance money that Two Flower promised him. And I don't know, it just, it works so well. And I really like that one, yeah. In this book, Death just kind of like, he shows up when he needs to and he does his job, but he's not getting people to try to go to their deaths. Yeah, I really like him. I think Death Personified is always an interesting character, but to have one who's interested in parties and just sees doing the whole death thing as a job, it's interesting. I like him. I did appreciate a line about him relatively early on was, he still used a site, he pointed out, where Death of other universes had long ago invested in combine harvesters. <laughs> yeah. I'm just imagining just a skeleton man seeing, oh, I've got a brand new gum my harvester. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that song. <laughs> I do like this death. I did notice he was a bit different. Just like I noticed there was a lot more pull from like short stories and fairy tales with the characters in this book. Like very obviously the gingerbread house, but this incarnation of death. That scene you were just talking about when he sees the wizard and the wizard goes to his own death while running from the idea of death was very much the appointment in Samara where the story varies frequently, but the overall gist of it is that someone sees death in the marketplace and death looks shocked to see them. And so they ask their friend or if it's an apprentice, ask their master to get a horse and ride off to Samara because death has 
come here for them, they think, and they don't want to be here. And so if they can go to another place, then they can outrun death. And so Death shows up to speak to this person who's just sent away this other, and they ask, why are you here for my friend or for my apprentice? What brought you here and why are you so surprised? And Death says that, oh, what shocked me was to see them here when tonight I have an appointment with them in Samara, in this place they're running to. Pretty grim, but it's a good short story. It's to the point. I also wanted to talk about the introduction of Perenna. I do appreciate Terry Pratchett's introduction of her deliberately not doing what a lot of Red Sonia types were at this point. Female action characters in fantasy with bikini armor. He himself was guilty of that in the last book. So it's partially an apology and also just trying to point out the silliness of such a thing. Oh yeah, honestly, that's still kind of a thing these days, unfortunately. Check out the Tumblr blog Escher Girls, an excellent catalog of really dumb costuming decisions by people who were not thinking with their brains, let's say. Yeah, I always really hate costuming where that is blatantly apparent. The other scene I wanted to talk a little bit more about was the introduction of trolls. This is where Terry Pratchett settles on what his trolls are. And it's interesting that one of the few things that stays consistent from these early books onward is that they are rock people, specifically, and more or less computer-ish in their biology. The oldest life forms in the multiverse dating from an early attempt to get the whole life thing on the road without all that squashy protoplasm. And also that they have this cultural thing of imagining they imagine that the past is the future because you can see what is going on in front of you. It's Pratchett phrases it a lot better than I do. Yeah, no, it's Terry Pratchett is very, very good with words. It's hard to kind of put in simple terms the things that he explains anyways. And it's also been a while since I finished the book. So it's a little rusty in my mind at this point. I only have the one quote, and just because it hit me so hard, I had to bookmark it. The rest was like, oh, that's silly, or oh, that's nice, but I just have the one quote. When they first encounter the Star Cult, basically, Rincewind is startled by everything and how all these townsfolk have created this thing and they're going on about how the gods don't care and all sorts of things that the stars come to kill them and they have to abandon the ways of magic and to Rincewind who while a failed wizard is still a wizard this is incredible and as a wizard he can see death and so he sees death and asks come to gloat whispered Rincewind death shrugged I have come to see the future he said this is the future a future. It's horrible. I'm inclined to agree. And Rincewind says, I would have thought you'd be all for it, to which death responds something that really struck me. Not like this. The death of the warrior, or the old man, or the little child, this I understand, and I take away the pain and end the suffering. I do not understand this death of the mind. But death of the mind is all dashed as in one word. So I would say like psychology is something that really interests me and the psychology of cults specifically is very interesting in its own right. I know my mother has watched a few documentaries, read a few books from people who rehabilitate others out of cults, so she's told me a little bit about that and whatnot. When I read that, Death was sad over these goings-on, and that Death was nervous and this nearly omniscient being didn't understand something. 
that's when the star cult went from humorous to legitimately scary. Whenever they showed up, I was actually nervous for the characters. And I think that becomes a recurring thing in the Disc World stories. There's a quote actually by Granny Weatherwax in a later book that evil begins when you start treating people as things. That's a really interesting way to phrase it. And I, I like that actually a lot. Yeah. And I think it's something we don't talk about enough in media is about the idea of like people being led into things by fear and clinging to something for any semblance of an understanding they can get, even if it's the wrong thing. Absolutely. I've got one. It's not super relevant to the plot or anything specifically. It looked like the sort of book described in the library catalogs as slightly foxed, although it would be more honest to admit that it looked as though it had been badgered, wolved, and possibly bared as well. It's such a good combination of words that it makes me frustrated that I cannot use words in that same way. It's just, it's just so brilliant, and I just, I really, really love it, and I wish I could write like that. Ironically enough, I learned a bit about how to write like that from a slam poetry class. Basically, you just write down what you want to say in as many words as it takes you to say it, and then you start taking out words and taking out words and taking out words until you have the barest concept of what you want, and then you replace those words with things that mean the same thing in a completely different way. Like, instead of saying, I was angry, or I was yeah. really angry, I think it's you'd important. say something like, my rage was a pit bull off the leash. Or something like that. Just not the dog thing. Yeah, that's what I was going to get. Yeah, it's like, it's meant to use whatever words will most closely evoke the image that you want. All right, should we start doing some trivia? Sure. For this, I've discovered the L-Space website, which is a Terry Pratchett wiki from before, but these were an official thing. So just to start us off, the book's title comes from the poem Alligator. The poem by John Milton in 1631, specifically the line, Come and trip it as ye go on the light fantastic toe. Tripping the light fantastic has come to mean dancing nimbly or lightly, and is the title of about four albums at time of recording. I knew it was probably like a term somewhere in like the public lexicon, just because like, I remember when I looked up the light fantastic just to see how much they were on Amazon, um, to see if that was be faster than me trying to hunt it down at one of the local libraries. I had to specifically add Terry Pratchett to get the book to come up because so many other things. Me too, and that was in the library search search box. Yes, Trip the Light Fantastic is the title of a 2007 Sophie Ellis Baxter album and a 2005 Ladybug Mecca album. Bing the Light Fantastic is a 1997 album by Lit and a 1990 album by Paul McCartney. Just the Light Fantastic is also a title of a BBC4 documentary series about the history and discovery of light, an episode of ABC Stage 7, and an episode of Pokemon. I'm willing to bet, without looking it up, that this is the only Discworld novel that shares a title. You know what? Actually, no. I'm not willing to make that bet. There's absolutely one or more more episodes of Pokemon, 
It's share a title with a Discworld novel. Yeah, there are like 40 Discworld books. And 700,000 Pokemon episodes. <laughs> yeah, so there's probably a little bit of crossover there. I like what they did with the title too, because the color of magic, that was more of a theme rather than a thing. It was mentioned once that like, was this, comma, the color of magic, but they did it again in this book. It was the light beyond the darkness. It's the light fantastic. And it was to paraphrase an underwhelming purple. A greenish purple. Yeah, so like the title of the book wasn't something that played too heavily into the song. It was just, meh, something went off. Yeah, I really like the way that Terry Pratchett describes the color of magic. It's always just kind of like, it's this kind of weird color that doesn't really make any sense to us. And it's honestly not all that pretty, but... Yeah, something I forgot to mention last time is that the color of magic is 93rd on the top 200 novels in the UK, according to The Big Read, is a survey that BBC carries out, or carried out in 2003. Uh, this book, The Light Fantastic, is not on the list. The Color of Magic is on there more for completion's sake, or for respect for the series, than it is for the book's quality. Terry Pratchett is only one of two authors to have five novels in the top 100, the other being Charles Dickens. He edges out Roald Dahl, J.K. Rowling, and Jacqueline Wilson, who each have four novels on there, and Jane Austen has three. That's a hefty group to be among. Be like, yeah, I have five books on this list. Yes, he has 15 novels in the top 200. That's insane. Obviously, he wrote a lot, and he has a lot of books out. Yeah, this is still insane to think about. Like, there are 15 books that people consider to be among the best 200. Just for comparison, Tolkien has two in the top 200. Those are also in the top 50. J.K. Rowling had four books in the top 50, which were the only four Harry Potter books out at the time of the survey. Yeah, <laughs> I think that makes sense. The scene where Death mentioned that he was at a party is probably a reference to The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe, in which a costumed personification of Death turns up at a big party. Uh, although the line that they're going to be taking his mask off is probably a reference to a more general comedy bit, notably in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Cohen the Barbarian is, of course, a reference to Conan the Barbarian. Celebrated, I guess, fictional character. Yeah, I think celebrated is probably a, a good word. It's like a million remakes of Conan the Barbarian movies. Yeah. The scene of Cohen's introduction is a direct reference to the movie where a bunch of the, I guess, barbarian peoples are asking the best in life question. And one does give Conan's answer from the movie, but Cohen answers it with the three things best in life, hot water, good dentistry, and soft lavatory paper. Question, would you say that Cohen was written to sound a little bit like Sean Connery? Yeah, with the way his accent is written, I think that makes sense. Because <laughs> that's the voice I was reading him in. I think in the early part, up until he gets dentures, it's more that he's written to indicate that he doesn't have teeth. I probably should have put that together. Like, I didn't notice that. Well, it is explicitly stated in one of the parts that I think you missed. Yeah, probably. Yeah, as another side note, after Cohen got his dentures, I couldn't immediately identify when he was speaking anymore. And so I kept getting confused on who it was because I was so used to him being written to, of speaking with the like mumbled words because he didn't have any teeth. Yeah, that's fair. He loses a little something. Also, the scene where druids are talking about the four forces of the universe, which they identify as charm, persuasion, uncertainty, and bloody-mindedness, you could make an argument are correlated to the four fundamental forces that govern our universe, 
gravitation, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. Notably absent from the list, and that Terry Pratchett introduces later on in the series, is narrativium, which is the world runs on stories. I think they brought that up in The Color of Magic. I can't quite remember when, but I do vaguely recall someone talking about like the power of a good story. Definitely, and it becomes a running theme throughout the entire series. Codified most in the The Science of Discworld series? That's neither here nor there. Something we completely forgot to talk about, because it wasn't important enough to mention in the summary, the visit to Death's house introduces the character of Isabel, whom we will meet later on as more of an actual character in the story Mort. She undergoes a lot of character shift. Yeah, she's kind of a lot. Yeah, that's the way to put it. I, I guess that's a question for you guys. How old were you imagining Isabel being? Because I couldn't like really pinpoint anything that made a lot of sense in my head. I haven't met her. <laughs> Maybe one of those weird psychopathic, actually sort of a Wednesday Addams character almost. Maybe a little older. Yeah, that makes sense. Because at first in my mind, she was really young. And then as we spent more time with her, she got a lot older in my mind. And I'm not sure why that happened. And if I just like incorrectly made an assumption about her age in the first place. Um, but I was like, I wasn't sure if that was just something that was ever explicitly stated or it was just left up into interpretation and I just could not interpret it. Oh, also, just because I forgot to mention it anywhere else, the book was published by the publishing company Colin Smythe in the year 1986, just for posterity, in case Wikipedia dies and this podcast somehow survives, which is statistically improbable. The only way anybody will ever know when the light fantastic came out. <laughs> this podcast. Redundancy is good for archiving. I think we're about ready to move on to the ending, unless you guys have trivia about this, the book? No, I don't think I do. It's time for the favorite footnote of the Dungeon Dimension creatures. They won't be described since even the pretty ones look like the offspring of an octopus and a bicycle. It is well known that things from undesirable universes are always seeking an entrance into this one, which is the psychic equivalent of handy for the buses and closer to the shops. Oh, like my apartment. Near the train station, near Main Street, within walking distance of the best deli in town. So, that's the end of the show. Thank you to Willow Carter for our theme music, and thank you for listening. Check your local library for the next book in the series, Equal Rights. Until next time, the, the turtle, turtle moves. moves. But the turtle stopped this time. <laughs>